to another episode of Music, Life, and Times with Kevin Bales and Mike Shaw. I'm Mike. I'm Kevin. Look at you. You put my name first this time. Yeah. <laughs> I don't deserve it. Proper respect for my elders. Oh, stop it. <laughs> oh, geez. Okay, so we this time we want to talk about Duke Ellington. Oh, wow. I mean, uh, as you have mentioned to me, this could be... 50 podcasts <laughs> it could be a, it could be a, an extensive book and act as in I mean fact, I, I, there I, are I, extensive books I can't even number the, the number of books about his music and he's still somewhat under acknowledged which is unusual I mean I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll lay it out in a certain way you know with the Black Lives Matter stuff all the stuff that's happened over the last four or five years in particular universities have been being pressured to better represent a more diverse set of music instead of like a, a white European thing. And um, when they're asked to include more black composers, usually they're only picking composers who write in the European tradition, like William Grant Still, who is wonderful. But um, Ellington never comes up. And yet as a composer, he, he, to me, he's, he's the most significant American composer ever. Um, and yes, it's African-American, but I mean, he outdoes everyone. It's amazing. And I mean, his, there's, you know, just for example, uh, my favorite song to open up with, with my trio is Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me. I mean, there's so many great songs. Well, you, you know, I think a lot of people will associate him with the songs he wrote in order to pay the bills. He kept a band together and paid them and took great care of them for more than five decades. Some of the people stayed in the band the whole time. And in order to afford them, he would just create hit songs so that he would have this orchestra that he could write for and that he could do his artwork. And often he would take a really complicated song beautiful, very detailed, complicated piece of music, kind of like a movement of a symphony. And he'd just take the melodies out of it and he would make a song out of it in Irving Mills or someone else would write some silly lyrics to it and they'd publish it and get someone to perform it and often be a hit and they'd he'd make a ton of money and use that to keep paying the band. <laughs> Do Nothing to Hear From Me is one of those. It was original, originally called Concerto for Cootie, for Cootie Williams. And that opening thing, that part, that was a warm-up that Cootie would do with the plunger. Um, each note having a slightly different sound. On his trumpet. Yeah, on the trumpet. You know, uh, There's a couple of other ones like that, like Don't Get Around Much Anymore was Never No Lament. Um, Night Train was Happy Go Lucky Local. It was part of a suite of, of pieces he wrote depicting different trains around America. Hmm. This is not what you think of when you think a cute little pop song, you know. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying he didn't like those songs. One of his most famous songs is Take the A-Train, which is a pretty short little ditty that really Billy Strayhorn wrote, and they orchestrated it for the band and became his hit song because it was a hit. But I think people would associate that. People don't know much just associate him as being a songwriter. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, that relationship with Billy Strayhorn was is interesting and there were so many other how many i mean so many great musicians that 
<coughs> wanted to and did work with uh, with Ellington, right? I mean, that's another yeah, I mean, aspect of Ellington. It's as all so many great musicians of his era were. I mean, this band. is my favorite thing about Ellington's music. The things I've learned the most from, um, and why I think he's greatest American composer because his composing is American in a very specific way. Is that he? wrote for each individual in the band, their parts for them, so much to the point that he didn't even number the parts. It's not like it was numbered violin one, violin two, or alto sax one, alto two. He put the guy's name on it. This is Johnny Hodges, but quite famously, Johnny Hodges, the lead alto player, he quit for four years. He took the book with him. <laughs> or when Ben Webster joined the band, um, Duke had to... Um, he buys contract out from, I think, from Fletcher Henderson. And they're all on tour all the time. So, um, you know, um, Ben Webster caught a, caught a train and joined them on tour. And he gets there. And Ellington was famously not not a disciplinarian. So all the band kind of struggles in at the last minute. Then he goes up to Ellington and says, oh, Mr. Ellington, I'm so excited you want me. This is like the best opportunity for me. Thank you so much. Uh, I, where's my music? And Ellington said, oh, we've never had more than four saxophone players before. <laughs> And, well, what do you want me to do? He says, oh, you're Ben Webster. Just take a seat. Be Ben Webster. Just play whatever you think is right. And uh, Ben Webster said he played it, but at the end of the first song, he played a note that uh, someone else was playing. They got mad at him. He said he spent the rest of the night trying to find notes that no one else was playing. <laughs> but, but, you know, this idea that he could write a piece of music that completely expresses him, himself, his ideas, but also the individuality of every musician that's playing, that is a radical American concept of democracy here. So much so that if you if you went and like any one of those people, like a different bass player was playing the gig, the songs are going to come out differently. I don't mean just yeah. his part, the cooperation of it. It's, it's almost a miracle that he would be able to do this. With so many well, musicians you know, playing. He would hire musicians... This is something I find different difference often between European classical music and 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 Ellington in particular is like if you if you if you learned like I grew up playing trumpet and like concert bands and stuff. The idea is you have four trumpets, you want them to all sound exactly alike. You want it to sound like one trumpet, mm -hmm. right? Ellington wanted four trumpet players who played completely different from each other. That's <laughs> why he wanted Ben Webster to not play like anyone else. So he viewed them all as like possible colors that he would use for painting. You know, he wanted this particular shade of ochre or something like that. But he also would, you know, let them change their own parts and, you know, do things that, he would try to write things that captured them and then they would, you know, they would be allowed to, you know, make, he would encourage them to play like themselves. Um, it's a true amount of cooperation that still has a singular vision of a composer. I, it's amazing. I know I'm gushing a little bit, but well, uh, and and that's Ellington is is uh, I, I would assume that uh, Ellington is one of the primary sources. You know, we talk about one of the most important ways to improve your playing are to to learn to play better is to listen, uh, and I guess Ellington is about. Uh, as fundamental as it gets in on your list of who to listen to. Right? You know, you know, it's funny. For the longest time, I didn't like listening to Ellington. It just sounded like 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 dance music at its, 
at a assisted living home. <laughs> you know, the the music of of proms from like the 1930s or something. <laughs> Uh, which is fine because I have a recording of Ellington playing a prom in North Dakota. It's amazing, <laughs> and like a basketball court. I mean, they just they just they were touring all the time. So they played wherever. Uh, I can't. If I was going to re- recommend a Duke Ellington recording to someone, which I do sometimes, I think one of the best ones is he 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 went through a period of rewriting classical pieces for his orchestra, and he rewrote the Nutcracker Suite, and it's amazing because it sounds like Tchaikovsky. And it sounds like Ellington, and it sounds like each person's playing it. it. So people know those melodies. When they listen to this, they kind of gives them a doorway into this unique thing he's doing. You know, it's funny. The, the, my copy of it is from Columbia Masterworks, where they were reissuing on CD. And the liner notes, whoever wrote these liner notes, he, he, he says, when Tchaikovsky and Ellington met in a, Las Vegas, in a Las Vegas hotel lobby, who knew what great music they would create together? <laughs> but but Tchaikovsky died. Uh, I think nine years before Be- before um, Ellington. Ellington was born. I mean, it's like <laughs> some of this information about about music, not just jazz. It's just so hard, so full of like uh, you know rumors and fun stories and and weird facts. You know, but you know this thing he wrote with taking classical music. That's that's wonderful. He also wrote classical music. I got the pleasure of playing. One of his last pieces, he was commissioned by Jacksonville Symphony to write a piece for. I got to play it for them. Mm. Uh, it's very hard to hear them trying to swing. Yeah. They, it, it was still cool. It was still cool. And that's a really underrated orchestra in Jacksonville, by the way. But, you know, what I've learned from Ellington is, is this affirmation that it's okay to be yourself when you're playing music. In fact, not only okay, it's kind of the, the most important thing, you know. It's kind of funny because we have an army of... Um, tribute bands now which are fun to hear you know the rolling bones instead of the rolling stones and and things like that of course jazz musicians we play other people's songs all the time you know but they're not the same thing as a cover like we're not recreating exactly i don't know have you listened to what what's your what's your feeling about listening to ellington there is something about his songs if you're singing him like i do uh there, that can be challenging. There's, there's leaps from. Uh, they're sort of characterized by that. By big you know, leaps. It might be because notes. he wrote it for instruments first, and then later they turned it into a you know a hit. Yeah, maybe know? so. Yeah, yeah. But but I just think they're great. I mean, a lot of them uh, are just just great songs, and even though they're melodies, as you say, taken taken from something else. Uh, the the pretty good melodies. <laughs> I mean, he he, he master musician. Uh, here, here's a little story I, I read in in this book by Mark Turner called the Ellington Reader. Um, he's a real expert. I think he teaches at Columbia. But um, this meant something to me. Ellington was always studying, always working on things. So yeah, there was a period where he started taking some lessons from a classical composer. Who I'm not, I might have been William Grant still, but I don't remember for sure. But after a bunch of lessons, Ellington says to him, it seems to me like there's a lot of fundamental rules that's part of learning how to write classical music. And they made a list of 10 of them. And my understanding is that Ellington wrote a piece for each of the rules, breaking it. What about the lyrics? Uh, well, Lush Life, that's Billy Strayhorn's masterpiece in so many ways, and he wrote the lyrics to it yeah. at age of 16, which is astonishing yeah 
Uh, their partnership was quite something special too, you know. Uh, Strayhorn, there's a lot of controversy. People say well, Strayhorn was the real genius, but from Strayhorn's own mouth, he said that when he wrote for Ellington, he would write in Ellington style. He was like a, uh, a copyist or an orchestrator, you know, um, and loved expressing Ellington's ideas. And Ellington loved having him there just like he loved having Ben Webster or someone else, you know. Um, he did, Billy Strayhorn did write his own music for a group called the Copacetics that were down in the village where they would dress up like women and wear funny fruit hats and dance out these uh, extremely um, joyful kind of musicals at a time where men weren't supposed to dress up as women, you know. It's very brave. Here's another thing about Ellington that I like is is the versatility. And you talked about, you know, writing classically oriented pieces and then drawing melodies from those for his songs. But it, I, one of the, to me, one of the one of the most admirable things about uh, musicians, the performers, the best ones, is they're not tied to a certain. Um, you know, some uh, performers, some musicians yeah, who have maybe a lot of hit records that sound all sound pretty much the same. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I always admired the people, for example, Paul Simon. He never wrote two songs that structurally were even close to each other. Or Stevie Wonder. Or I mean, these are, these are amazing composers. Yes. And I think Ellington... Even though his he has a style, obviously there's and and it's uh, still that that everything is fresh. Every song that I come across that I hear from Ellington is different, has distinction from from his other work. You know, Mike, it's not just that; it's the quantity. How many how many albums did the Beatles, who I love? Amazing songwriters themselves. How many albums did they release? I don't know. Somewhere around 16 to 20, I think. I don't remember anymore. But um, Ellington had over 2,000 pieces of music recorded. And we're not talking about... Some of them were like, you know, 15-minute, 20-minute songs. Or sweets, you know. Um, his discography, when you print it out, Oh, well, this is, boy, this is an anachronistic way to say it, was the size of the Atlanta phone book, which used to be about three <laughs> inches thick. Uh, phone books were, oh, well, who knows? They'll figure, they'll figure it out and they don't know. But no, it's, it's just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, his discography, and it covers everything from film scores, string quartets, um, secular music, religious music, Partnerships with famous people like Mahalia Jackson or Louis Armstrong, um, suites portraying music of other countries. Um, at the very end, in the early seventies, you know, seventy-one, he was using rock and roll in his stuff, like those kinds of beats and rhythms, and always filtering it through his African American experience. It's uh, by productivity alone. He should be one of America's greatest composers. He was nominated for a Pulitzer in the 60s, unanimously by the, the three-member panel. And the governing board refused to give it to him because it was a black jazz musician. The three members protested and quit. They gave it to someone else anyway. And Ellington was like, 
almost 70 at this point. And when they interviewed about him about it, he says, oh, he, he said, oh, don't worry about it. I, I know what's happening. Fate doesn't want me to be famous at such a young age. Would have been something. Stuff I learned from him, let's wrap it up. You know what I mean? Because we have been talking about learning from music and stuff. I definitely, I learned it was okay, this individuality thing. You can be an individual in your music and still cooperate with everyone else, which is um, wonderful. It's a great lesson uh, of life. It's a great lesson of jazz in general. And it's uh, obviously something we can learn from listening to the music of Duke Ellington.